to humans. Earth to human? to humans wake up wise up do what you can individually and together you're listening to the earth to humans podcast the podcast where we talk about how to un the planet my name is serena simons and i'm matt podolsky welcome back everybody we've been on a nice long hiatus from the podcast but it feels super awesome to be back on that yeah for sure and i could not be more excited about the episode that we're sharing oh my god oh yeah. my god oh my god <laughs> we're, can you tell we're so excited <laughs> and matt i made matt um re-listen to it today uh i don't know i, I feel just as jazzed about it as the day we recorded it for sure. I, yeah, I mean, it had been a, a number of weeks and re-listening to it uh, this afternoon definitely got me excited again. Mm-hmm. Um, partly it's about like what is being stated, but also it's it's a lot of just about the energy mm-hmm. that is behind it. We did want to just do a little bit more um, housekeeping before we get started on this episode. Um, we have a lot of new th- exciting things happening on the podcast as we're coming back um, we're going to be going back to our regular schedule of every other week. So twice a month, you'll get a new Earth to Humans episode in your feed. But also, Matt, can you talk a little bit about our change to our Patreon and where people can find more info? For sure. So we did a significant upgrade to our Patreon campaign. And we know a lot of our listeners um, are have already signed on to our campaign. And we thank all of you for that. But mm-hmm. uh, I think that we'll be able to entice a few more of you with some of the changes <laughs> that we've made. Um, and I think like the biggest change is that we have launched the Earth to Humans book club. Mm-hmm. Um, and so every fourth episode of the show, we will feature uh, a prominent author who writes about environmental or conservation issues or anything that is sort of connected to that Mm -hmm. from a pretty broad perspective and not Uh, always uh nonfiction yeah both fiction and nonfiction for sure um and uh after we feature that author interview um we are going to do our best to make um ebook copies of that author's book available to our membership at free or discounted cost. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we're going to have uh, a private sort of Q&A session with that author that will invite all of the members of our Patreon campaign to join. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I, I think that's the coolest uh, aspect about what we did. And we also sort of lowered the bar of entry for that. So you only have to pay $1 a month to join the book club and to get access to these uh, private exclusive sort of conversations, uh, with some of these, um, uh, exciting authors that we'll be interviewing. And yeah, we've got some other exciting rewards, uh, there on the campaign as well. Um, including, oh my gosh, um, so excited. yeah, including <laughs> some items that feature our brand new logo, which mm-hmm. I'll let you, uh, explain the new logo, Serena. Oh my gosh. This logo has been, such a labor of love on the behind the scenes 
side of the team. Um, we have this beautiful new logo for the podcast designed by Nozomi Takayabu. Um, it's, it's bright. It's beautiful. I feel like it really tells a story. So we're, we're really, really, really excited and, and proud of it. So. For sure. And yeah, hopefully if you're listening to this podcast, then that means you're probably looking at the logo right now because you're staring at your <laughs> podcast app or whatever. So hopefully you agree with us. Yeah. And I mean, what, so one of the other new uh, updates that we have is that we have an Instagram account uh, for uh, like dedicated to the Earth to Humans podcast for the first mm-hmm. time. Um I'm probably not the best person to be introducing the Instagram account because I've never actually used Instagram in my life. But um, that is true. But I do that know that our new Instagram hand, do you call it a handle? Is that what? Oh my is God, Matt. Mm, I actually think it is. No, it's your username. Oh, it's your username. Okay. Our username. For... <laughs> I threw so much shade at you and then I didn't even know the answer. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Our, our new... Just really yeah. sassy about it. <laughs> <laughs> Our new Instagram username for the Earth to Humans podcast is at Earth to Humans Pod. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's going to be a really cool way, I think, for our listeners to get to know us on the other side of the podcast and do more behind the scenes. Sort of, we're going to put a lot of things on the Instagram before we announce it in other ways. So it'll be a, a great way for you to get the latest news on the podcast and developments first. Um, so we're very excited about that. Oh, sorry. More noise. Moran just got home. (laughs) So one of the other updates uh, that we need to share is that we will be going back and archiving um, some of our past episodes. Um, So we're doing this uh, primarily to make the show feel more discoverable for uh, new listeners um, because there's a lot of, there's an enormous backlog of, of old episodes. Yeah. We've been doing this a long time. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, to be honest, some of those early episodes that I produced when I was first getting the show started are, are a little bit embarrassing um, <laughs> or, or, or a lot embarrassing. You know? No. <laughs> but yeah, we want those old episodes to still be available to folks but we also want the shows that are on the public feed to be more representative of the current direction of, mm-hmm. for where we're taking the show and mm-hmm. so this is what we've decided to do is to just kind of go through that backlog of old episodes and we're going to archive a bunch of them we're going to keep a bunch on the feed and anyone who signs up on patreon to uh, our new Earth to Humans book club will have access automatically in their feed to all of the archived episodes. Um, So if you're upset that you won't have access to all those old episodes, um, you can join the Earth to Humans book club. And remind me again how much that is. $1 a month. $1 a month. Yeah, that's $12 every year. That is... That is small potatoes in comparison to what you get, huh? Yeah, you get (laughs) access to the book club, bonus episodes, archived episodes for $1 a month, and you are supporting this really rad podcast that we call Earth to Humans. So anyway, let's get into this podcast episode. Um, We are really excited to have Dr. Sylvia Earle on this episode, our returning episode to the podcast she is the like one of the coolest people on the planet right now, honestly. And she's doing so much amazing work and advocacy 
for the oceans and you will know her name if you don't already know it now you will know her name at the end of this episode and i promise you you're going to want to look her up and uh learn more about her so we're excited we're stoked yeah for sure i feel like we could sit here and gush about it for a <laughs> while but um yeah i feel like we should just get into it and 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 let people hear her perspective Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Let's get into it. Close your eyes and picture yourself underwater. See the light sway above you as it gets darker and darker the further down you go. Welcome to the deep waters of the ocean, a place where today's guest has spent a considerable part of her life, swimming alongside the ocean's many flora and fauna. Dr. Sylvia Earle is an icon in marine biology and ocean conservation, and has been featured in popular documentaries like Seaspiracy, Mission Blue, and Chasing Ice. She has won many awards and accolades, including the Carl Sagan Award for Public Understanding of Science, the National Audubon Society's Rachel Carson Award, and has authored more than 150 publications. She's also the first woman to walk on the ocean floor. Here it is, our conversation with Dr. Sylvia Earle. I'm Sylvia Earle. I'm an oceanographer and explorer. I've been explorer in residence at the National Geographic since 1998, <laughs> and now explorer at large, and author of a big new book that National Geographic has is about to release called Ocean Global Odyssey. It's how I spent 2020 <laughs> and 30 years before, more or less. I'm also the founder of Mission Blue, an organization that really is devoted to, well, taking care of the ocean as much as we can and inspiring people. We, we aspire to inspire people around the, the world to embrace the ocean with, with care, with a network of places that are really aimed at going from wherever they are to get to a, a better state, uh, ideally full protection to be part of the global initiative to embrace at least 30% of the land and sea by 2030. We call these places hope spots because if we really are successful in getting people to take care of places they love, there really is hope for the world. Yeah, that was beautiful. Um, the way that you talk about the ocean is, um, I think, Probably the the first thing that drew me to your work, Sylvia, is um, it's it's almost like you have a, a relationship with the ocean, like it's like it's a family member or it's a relative, you know, home. It's, home. it's home. Yeah, I mean, mm. can you kind of um, tap into to what that what that means to you, what that feels like, and and why you feel so connected to the ocean? So everyone is connected to the ocean, whether they have ever seen. Or touch the ocean. The ocean touches everyone everywhere all the time with every breath you take, every drop of water you drink. I first began 
to fall in love with the ocean uh, when I was a child, first on the New Jersey shore, when I got knocked over by a wave and the ocean got my attention. But it's life in the ocean. It's, it's a living system. It's not just rocks and water. Every drop has something alive. And taken as a whole, it's a living system. When I moved my, with my parents to Florida when I was 12, the ocean was right there in my backyard. And I got to see it and, and actually get into the ocean almost every day. So it just seemed more natural to me than it is for some people who do not have that ability to see the ocean every day, let alone get into it. And I was among the first able to actually use scuba to dive in. And not because there's anything special about me. It's just that scuba equipment became available at just the right time for me as an aspiring young scientist to use the ocean as a laboratory, as, as a place where I could go learn about things, about the ocean, about life in the ocean. And it's, it's been a love affair ever since. Continuing, getting better all the time. You, I mean, you say there's nothing special about you. Um, and I think that's a really uh, humble way to put it. Uh, you, as, as a woman, you know, at the time, that was incredibly powerful. And you were an incredible trailblazer at the time, you know. Um, I'm, I'm sure in the moment, maybe it didn't, it didn't feel that way. But you know, look, looking back on some of the the documentaries that you've been part of and, um, you know, a lot of them show a retrospective of your life and old photographs. And what has changed for you since you were kind of a, a young gun marine biologist just getting started to uh, to now? And I guess the the way women in sciences are viewed today has have things changed. I was fortunate to have parents and a few teachers along the way who had my back, if you will. <laughs> and yes, you're right. That as a woman in the 50s and 60s and 70s, and even now, I, there were so, certain um, constraints that were not the same as my male colleagues had, like going to sea when I went on my first big expedition to go out into the ocean. It was 1964. I was the only woman with 70 men on a boat six weeks at sea in the Indian Ocean. I have been asked a lot, what was it like? And I said, well, I had a lot of help, but I tried not to have any help. And having a good sense of humor, <laughs> always, no matter who you are, or what you do, anywhere, anytime, it helps to be not, not too thin-skinned, but to roll with whatever comes your way and and turn what could be not so pleasant circumstances into something that you you can just turn on their head <laughs> if, if you look at it with the right perspective. And I figured that there are a lot of people who would object or say no, but if you really want to do something, figure out a way over, under, around, through, <laughs> and don't be too concerned about who gets credit. Mm. for what's happening mm. I, I was just pleased to be able to be <laughs> Dr. Sylvia Earle's dogs everybody <laughs> the time of the day the barking time <laughs> oh, oh, oh. 
slow down a minute, I hope. What kind of dogs do you have? Well, we have one Chesapeake Bay Retriever, one Chocolate Brown Retriever, and uh, two rescue dogs of uncertain origin. <laughs> we, but they bark. <laughs> I love a rescue dog of uncertain origin. <laughs> I'd like to be a rescue dog in this household. <laughs> a lot of TLC. And... I wondered if you could um, describe what it felt like the first time that you went down deep into the ocean. Were you afraid? Were you excited? What was going through your head and, and what did that feel like? You know, when I first had a chance to use scuba in 1953, I didn't believe, I mean, I had, had to convince myself that you could really breathe underwater. <laughs> it seemed so illogical that you could do that. But it only took a few seconds before I not only found that I could, but that it was such a joy. I, I mean, I've been snorkeling for quite a while before then. But, you know, use, just using a face mask, that's the key. To be able to see underwater makes a huge difference. But seeing and then breathing underwater, I felt transformed. When you're fully submerged, you are essentially weightless. And it's like flying. You can stand on one finger. You can do backflips. You can do the most extraordinary things that you can't do as easily on the land or at all. But what has really made for me diving so special is being able to spend time with the creatures who live there to be able to get to know fish face to face, getting to know that they have faces that they have personality, that everyone is different from every other one. You can look at a school of little silver fish and realize if you stop and really watch, they all have separate behaviors. They, you can really see differences. Sometimes they do tend to look alike, but I suspect if fish were to swim in a crowd of people, we would look all kind of alike as well. But we know we're, we're individuals. Some fish that you see are are really curious. They come to check you out. Others are really shy and swim away as soon as they see something big and strange like us in the water. <laughs> but it's not just the fish. I've had some incredible experiences with curious lobsters <laughs> who, who are just, they, they just seem to be huh, what like a, like a child. They want to know what's going on. They come over and inspect you. Not to bite you, just to Find out what is this strange thing in, in their territory. Whales, some of them pay no attention to you whatsoever. Others go way out of their way to come over and check you out. And some, sometimes they'll hang around for a while. So it's just magical. So, uh, you know, it, early in your career, I guess, you know, you had clearly you had a lot of these goals surrounding ocean exploration and, and using the, the new technology of scuba to um, I still do. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. And to experience that in, in, in this new way. Yes. Right. Yeah. And, and sure, that's still going on. Uh, absolutely. Um, and, you know, uh, that on top of, you know, improving access to this field for women. Um, but at a certain point, 
there must have been like a, a, I guess I'm wondering if there was like a realization point for you in your career when you started to understand that the ocean itself needed help. And if there was like, like, like what, where did it, you know, I mean, it, like, was there such an incident? And if so, I mean, um, like, was there a particular moment that, that led to that inspiration? Well, being in Florida in the 1950s and 60s and 70s, the, just the awareness of how quickly we humans were transforming the nature of nature on the land as well as in the sea. The places that I knew and loved were, were fast being transformed, consumed. And just to see the difference in the number of, of sharks, the number of fish, the health of the, the coral reefs, it wasn't one event, it was a, a, just an avalanche of events that instead of seeing my species move with respect and, and care on the land or the sea, we, we just seem to have this habit of consuming nature, clear-cutting forests, draining marshes, planting housing developments and parking lots over some of the places that oysters once grew and seagrass meadows thrived to cut down the mangroves and turn them into marinas you know, dig out the ocean to make the, the shallow areas deeper because it was convenient for us, not realizing how much of the ocean was being sacrificed, transformed in ways that now we're beginning to understand that we, we need a healthy ocean, healthy coastlines. When you wall off the ocean with seawalls or transform them so that the, the they call the living shorelines, the, the, and and make them into hard surfaces when the storm comes comes by we are more vulnerable than when they have this wonderful resilient shoreline with trees and with coral reefs that break the the impact of storms so for that reason alone it's important to look at the ocean with enhanced respect and care but beyond that what's coming into focus for me, as well as for much of the of those many of those who study climate and weather, and the what what is it that makes Earth special in the universe? Why why is Mars so barren? Why is the Moon empty? Look out into the other places that we can see in the universe, even beyond our own solar system. What makes Earth habitable for us? And the answer is right there, looking, staring us in the face. It's life. Earth is alive. The ocean is alive. But what we have done to the natural fabric of life in such a short time, my lifetime, is our population has soared in terms of our numbers. When I arrived, there were only about 2 billion people. Now we're close to 8 billion. So I've watched what appears to be great prosperity on our part with you know, almost four times as many people as when I arrived. And in many ways, we are prospering better than ever before in history. We're living longer. We're, even though there is poverty and, and there is hunger, it's 
on a global scale in terms of the numbers of people who are better fed, living longer. You know, we are really making significant progress. But what we haven't faced up until up to until right about now is the cost of our prosperity. That we have consumed nature and are continuing not to really understand that there are limits to how many trees we can cut and turn into board feet of lumber, how much of how much of the water, freshwater and ocean, how many of the fish from the sea can be consumed without turning from planetary prosperity, not just us, but life as a whole, upon which we are totally dependent, reliant for our existence. Now we're beginning to understand and beginning to care and beginning to take action. In my lifetime, I've been a witness to the greatest era of learning, of understanding, at the same time, the greatest era of loss. 90% of the of, of many of the fish that we take to market are gone. In some cases, it's more like 99%. Tiny fraction still remains of what was there when I was a kid. So the good news is when we see it and take action, whales, for example, there are more whales today than when I was a child. Why? Because people began to see the value of whales in terms of something more than pounds of meat and barrels of oil. By the 1930s, when I arrived, you know, whales were close to being exterminated. We're even using relatively unsophisticated ways of killing whales. We were able to bring their populations down to near extinction. And in some areas like the Pacific Ocean has maybe a few hundred gray whales. There used to be thousands. And we did the same thing in the west coast of North America, from uh, Alaska all the way down to Mexico. There were just a few hundred remaining, but we stopped killing them. We began protecting the feeding areas and the breeding areas. Now, they're not back to what they were, say, 500 years ago, but they're more than there were 50 years ago. It shows that we, we can make a difference when we understand what to do and then when we do it. It's not true with sharks. It's not true with cod or herring or grouper or many other tunas that are down to 3% bluefin tuna. You know, just a fraction of what they were in, in the 1950s. We hadn't begun to take them the same way that we were taking whales up until that point, but now we've gotten to be really good at finding, capturing, and marketing uh, not just bluefin tuna, but tunas of all sorts. My do dog, Sully, says, you're right. <laughs> Let's do something about that. <laughs> you talk about how, you know, we, I mean, you have lived through this era of, of great exploration and learning just an immense amount uh, about the ocean and ocean ecosystems. And simultaneously, we've experienced this, this enormous loss, right? right. Um, and I, I, I mean, I guess I'm curious about like the connections between the two, right? And I mean, 
like specifically for, for you, because you've been involved in developing a lot of technology for underwater exploration. And like, I, I know that one of the, you know, one of the main drivers for developing that technology aside from ocean exploration is, well, I mean, it's still exploration, but it's exploration for, uh, for oil drilling um, and extraction of these resources that are one of the primary culprits for the destruction. So like, I, I mean, I guess I'm curious about like what that was like working in that technological field in order to gain knowledge but like, were I mean, were you borrowing technological advances from the oil industry, or were they borrowing technological advances from you? The technology cuts both ways, obviously, and I got some grief as one who really fostered the development of access to the sea, underwater robots, and little submersibles, and other equipment that really have improved access to the sea and at the same time borrowed from the oil and gas industry because that's where the investments were being made largely to gain access to the ocean. I mean, we would be far less able to explore the ocean had that investment not been made. True too with saturation diving, it was oil and gas industry that needed to have people living and working underwater. So they invested significant funding, and so did the U.S. Navy and, and other navies around the world. So scientists have been the beneficiary of this, these new technologies for exploring the ocean. But when people ask, why are you making it easier for people to get into the ocean, they'll just exploit it just as they do every other place that we go. And, and I say, well, we're exploiting it in ignorance. We are. Fishermen are dragging these enormous nets across the ocean floor, taking everything. They've never seen what it's like down there. They don't know what's being lost. I mean, they see all the stuff that comes up in their nets and they casually just throw it over the side. You know, you take, look at a pound of, of shrimp that comes out of the ocean and think that maybe a hundred pounds of other creatures have been tossed and lost as a consequence of that little bit of morsel that you take to your plate. But now that we know, we're able to do something about it. If you don't know, you can't care. And you might know and not care, but if it's hard to show people, tell people why they should care if you don't have access to see what's going on yourself. So scuba really has made millions of people aware of what, what fish are like in ways other than just as commodities, other than fish fillets. But to see them alive in the ocean, these animals are miracles. Every living thing is. When you think, if we came back from Mars with a shrimp, people would be astonished. <laughs> Where did this creature, how did this creature come to be? Just imagine, look at its little legs and how they function and those in eyes that, how, how could... What has it taken to, to make every living creature? I, I'm mindful of Carl Sagan, his comment about, if you want to make an apple pie from scratch, first you have to invent the universe. So life on earth 
Everything has come from somewhere over very long periods of time. If you had all the money in the world, all the resources to say, okay, make me a tuna fish. Oh, we don't know how to do that, how to kill them. We really don't know how to start from scratch to make these creatures that we so, so blithely extract and use as products. We, we need to work with nature. Yes, we will take life from the land and from the sea. We, all creatures use other forms of life to foster their individual prosperity. When you think birds take twigs to build a nest, they didn't start from molecules to make, or, or raw materials to make their nest. They start with some natural object. But we have gone over the edge without respecting the consequences. No creature has taken so much so fast and imperiled all life on earth because of our, first of all, our lack of understanding. And we're the only creatures perhaps who can fully appreciate the magnitude of what it means to see the connections in all of nature. As smart as whales are, as smart as elephants are, they've never seen earth from space. They've never been to the deepest parts of the ocean. The deepest diving whales only go, you know, maybe a mile underwater, but the average depth of the ocean is more than twice that deep. The maximum seven miles, 11 kilometers down. So lucky us, we, we can understand what no other creatures can, but that superpower of knowing means we've got a chance. We don't have to just blindly go forward and consume and change the world in ways that, that mean the end for us and everything else on the planet. Mm -hmm. Change it so that it's no longer hospitable for life as we know it. We have the power to destroy, but we also have the power to heal. So, um, Earth to humans, <laughs> wake up, wise up, do what you can individually and together. Turn from decline to, you know, recovery. We can do this. We'll be right back. Earth to Humans is back and better than ever with a slate of guests and topics that we can't wait to share with you. If you like the work that we do here on the show and want to support us so that we can keep bringing you the good stuff, head on over to patreon.com slash earth to humans. For as little as $1 a month, you can support the show in a big way. Patreon subscribers will get access to a range of exclusive ETH content, including our book club, author talks, archived episodes, merch, and more. That's patreon.com slash earth to humans for more information on how you can join this kick-ass community of nature love and weirdos. I, I think this is a great segue into commercial fishing and you know, your time at NOAA, sort of entering the realm of, of power and, and, and politics and actually being able to enact change in that way. But 
Matt co-directed um, Sea of Shadows, uh, Nat Geo film about the Vaquita. And one of the, the big push and pulls in that film was how do we do what's right by the planet, by specific species, but also ensuring that some of these communities, you know, a, a lot of indigenous communities have uh, livelihoods, you know. And so obviously commercial fishing is not uh, these these small scale communities, but um, oftentimes I think you know, when we kind of demonize fishing as a whole, uh, we're demonizing some of those smaller communities that have been doing um, certain practices for, for a while. And, you know, that's how they feed their families. And, um, you know, I just, I wondered if you can kind of give us a scope of, of what, what that decision-making kind of looks like as you're thinking about all of these things and, and how we make the best outcome for everybody. Well, 2020 <laughs> gave me a, the opportunity to seriously reflect on this issue and others being forced to articulate and, and really wrap your mind around those issues, writing a book. And I did try very hard to look at the evidence globally, what's happening, why it matters, and what we might do in the future to address the concerns that now are upon us. In, in, the, in the first part of the global odyssey, I, I really tried to say what described the nature of the ocean. And the middle section of the book is trying to describe the nature of life in the ocean. The great, greatest diversity on earth is out there in the sea. And to illustrate it, to, to get people to be aware that it's more than fish and whales and sharks. It's this splendid diverse array. All the major divisions of life are out there in the ocean. Only about half of the animal divisions, 15 or so, occur on the land, and the more than 35 occur in the ocean. Big divisions of life. What do they look like? We tried to, to show that in, in the, the ocean odyssey. But then finally, to seriously look on how does the ocean affect people? How does the ocean affect you? wherever you are, and to turn it around. How are you, how are we affecting the ocean? What's causing the decline and what can we do about it? And to leave at the end of the book to suggest what we individually and together can do to turn from decline to recovery. And nowhere is that more obvious than as it relates to climate and as it relates to what we're taking out of the ocean. And really the the habit that we have acquired over the years of thinking of nature just as a source of goods, especially the ocean, where we take wildlife by the ton, not just to feed your families and communities using techniques that leave little damage, but more of a symbiotic relationship with the sea to really understand, respect the ocean, not to kill it. And we are killing the ocean by taking massive amounts of wildlife on a scale that isn't just limited to what we take with individual species. It's the wreckage we leave behind using te techniques like long lines, baited hooks that stretch sometimes for more than a, a kilometer, several kilometers, 50 kilometers, 60 kilometers of line 
that continues to exist even after those lines are lost or discarded into the ocean. And they, they're very good at killing things, but not just the things, not just the organisms that we're targeting, such as swordfish or tuna or sharks. Every year around the world, lost, just the lost and discarded fishing gear, not just those that we are deliberately, deliberately used to catch fish, but hundreds of thousands. Let that sink in. Hundreds of thousands of marine mammals and birds and turtles, as well as the targeted species, are killed. And that doesn't even account for the, the lesser known organisms that you'll see if you open up the book right in the center of Ocean Odyssey. You'll see this ocean floor trying to catch flounder or other bottom dwellers, and you or shrimp. Shrimp is a particularly good example because so few are actually taken in comparison to how much other life is destroyed. It's like going through New York City with a bulldozer because what you want are the taxi cabs and you throw everything else, all the buildings, all the, you know, the trees just get sacrificed because you, you want the taxi cabs. <laughs> and in the ocean, we, if you can't see it, if you aren't there, if you haven't looked at the ocean as it was before, to look at it now, I mean, the ocean, people ask me sometimes, what's your favorite place to go diving? And I say, almost anywhere 50 years ago, because it was more intact a few decades ago than it is today. We're really good, really, really good at killing. So what about coastal communities, families? What about the traditions that have a long history going back sometimes not just centuries, but thousands of years. Well, those livelihoods, those lives are at risk because we have scaled up the extraction of wildlife from the ocean and are so good at finding, catching, and marketing ocean wildlife that it's, it's just gone way beyond feeding families and communities. We're now feeding people who've never seen the ocean. It's not, this is not a matter of livelihoods that are long, have long traditions. This is a matter of using new technologies with new markets on a new scale. You cannot justify taking 100 million tons of wildlife and say we're just feeding coastal communities and people have no choices. Most of that wildlife is going to feed luxury choices. Who needs to eat bluefin tuna? If they've never, I mean, most people inland have never been until, you know, right about now or really starting in the 1970s. Um, it wasn't just tuna, uh, swordfish. I never had such animals on my menu as a child, even though I lived close to the coast. These are animals taken from far, far away. And certainly Chilean sea bass, these Antarctic fish that are taken from deep cold water, thousands of miles from where they're marketed. They, we somehow have gotten into the habit that they're, they're renewable, they're sustainable. Fish that are, live to be as old as humans and taken in large quantities, they don't come back overnight. 
I think we could make a case for saying that some animals that we farm, if we're really careful, like chicken, or when you think about all the animals that we grow on the land are plant eaters. We don't raise top carnivores, meat-eating animals. We, we, we couldn't. It's just not very efficient. It takes about two pounds of plants to make a pound of chicken, about 20 pounds of plants to make a pound of cow. But to make a tuna, a big bluefin tuna that takes about 10 years to mature before they even start to reproduce, we're talking thousands of pounds of phytoplankton plant at the end of a long and twisted food chain to get to the fish that are big enough for a tuna to, to notice and be able to eat. The fish have gone through generations and many categories of other forms of life, starting with plants to be zooplankton, complex systems that <laughs> it's like eating a zoo that, that, that are eaten by small fish that are eaten by larger fish that finally get to a big predator. And it, it's true with swordfish. It's true with salmon, plant eating fish like parrotfish that nobody that I ever heard of until quite recently we're down that we've eaten the, the big fish, eaten the groupers, eaten the snappers, eaten all the big fish. And now we're down to choices that were not available until about you know 10 years ago around coral reefs and other tropical areas parrotfish that do eat plants began to appear on menus why well, most of the other fish are gone and now there these <laughs> sad thing is that all at all stages there's a role for these animals there it's a tightly linked closely coupled network of life. And we have blindly just cut through the various categories of, of life. And it's, it's dramatic, it's devastating, and it's affecting the carbon cycle. Say, what? How does, how does my habit of eating shrimp and tuna and swordfish affect the carbon cycle? <laughs> well, and, and climate. We see great attention now being given to forests and other plants on the land. Why? Because they capture carbon and sequester it. Mangroves are finally getting some respect, is capturing carbon, holding carbon, sequestering carbon, holding the planet steady. We're, we're trying to reduce carbon dioxide in the atmosphere brought about because of the burning of fossil fuels. And at the same time, we're now understanding that to bring down carbon dioxide, the way it has been brought down over the ages, our atmosphere going back hundreds of millions of years ago was largely carbon dioxide. But photosynthesis by plants on the land and by phytoplankton in the sea, capturing carbon and turning it into all other forms of life, you know? We are carbon-based units too. All living things are basically carbon-based units. So it's, it's great that we're now beginning to give carbon credits and understand the economic value of living trees, of living marshes, of living mangroves. What about living fish? 
International Monetary Fund commissioned a study that was made available at the World Economic Forum in Davos in 2020, calculating the value of whales in the ocean alive today to be worth more than a trillion dollars. That's a big T, trillion. For their carbon value, let alone everything else that we value whales for alive, we come to have an affection for whales in our time in the 21st century, unlike most of the 20th century, where whales were valued just as products, mm -hmm. barrels of oil. Now, maybe we'll get to see fish and shrimp and squid and octopuses and all the other forms of life in the ocean is valuable to everyone everywhere. Because why? They're carbon-based units. They're not releasing carbon dioxide into the atmosphere as long as they stay in the sea. But as soon as we take them out, it's like burning a forest. Mm -hmm. The carbon dioxide is released mm -hmm. into the atmosphere. Well, you just did a, a great job of explaining the, the stakes, right? Like why every little piece of the puzzle is so connected. And once we remove things and start uh, playing God and, and disrupting the, the system that's just been so specifically designed over millennia, um, you know, I, I, I would be remiss without asking you about the oil spill in, in Southern California. I'm from Southern California. And um, when I first heard it, I, I don't know the the first thing out of my mouth was sort of yeah I I I wasn't surprised mm -hmm. and I'm so incredibly devastated by what's happening and the ripple effect and the cascade that this is going to have you know years down the road um and and it's, it's an environment that I care so deeply about and grew up around and we have so much biodiversity down there um were you surprised? And, you know, we kind of talked about this earlier, this sort of collective exhaustion around this environmental trauma that we're just con continually experiencing, you know, the ocean's on fire, we've got hurricanes that are devastating, and um, we're losing species left and right. And now we have uh, oil spills and, and pipelines. And, you know, how, how do we deal with a world like this? How do we how do we manage to find hope? You know, and I, I, I think that's a big thread in your work is you always seem to find hope. But, um, you know, I think for Matt and I, we've had a lot of conversations. He's raising a son who's eight. Uh, we've had a lot of talks about how, how we communicate climate change to kids without, you know, scaring the crap out of them, um, but being realistic. And I don't know, we're, I think Matt and I are just, we're really confused with how we get past this um, this exhaustion and this uh, this despair that I think has kind of sunk over a lot of us in in the environmental world and and you know with this oil spill um, it, it just makes it hard sometimes you know I tell kids I tell everybody but especially kids that you're the luckiest kids ever to arrive on the planet there's there are lots of reasons for despair and oil spill right now in Southern California is evidence because it doesn't have to happen. These are preventable disasters. In Mauritius, the ship that went aground, there's an oil spill, you know, half a world away. 
devastating World Heritage Area, wildlife there, really in serious trouble. And even more compounding it, it had a containers filled with nurdles, those tiny little specks of plastic that are used to, to, to form plastic products. And they were spilled into the ocean, just an, an avalanche that, you know, plastic is the other kind of oil spill. They're, they're formed of, of petrochemicals and transformed. You know, when you think about our, how our access to oil, gas, and coal in the last 200 years, especially in the last 50 years, has really taken us from where we were to a significantly better place in terms of our prosperity, our knowledge, access to the skies above, clothes we wear, cures for diseases, our, our ability to understand the world driven by cheap energy. But we thought it was cheap energy. Now we see the real cost. That's why we're lucky. The, the, the idea that if we did not know, we'd be in much worse condition. <laughs> There'd be less cause for hope. But the superpower that we now have of knowing we have sent people high in the sky, and we still are doing this, to look at Earth and measure change over time. We have the evidence of why we must change our ways. We must change how we power our civilization. And the great news, we can. We also know, we, we know what to do. We know we have to stop killing wildlife on the land and in the sea on the scale that we have imposed. We know now we can measure the change, and we know that when we change our ways, stop killing, recovery is possible. We can't go back to the world as it was 50 or you know, any 500 years, even five years ago, but we can make things better armed with knowledge. The habits, the culture, the traditions that people have that have gotten us to where we are. But we have to change. I'm also optimistic that we can, because look at 2020. Who would imagine that those who have been, become so accustomed to just burning through fossil fuels, going anywhere in the world at the snap of a, yes, let's pick up and go. No, we stopped. We paused. And we could see cause and effect not just the noise, the airs became clearer. We realized being forced to pause that maybe something that we can do, what, what is important in life to reflect on the, the value of life itself and how when facing a common threat, a virus, we can actually pull together, or if not consciously, we're all together around the world, we're changing our, our habits, we're wearing masks. You feel almost, when you go out and you don't have a mask on, you where's my mask? And that's a change that nobody would have thought that would, could be possible 10 years ago. But now we, we over, around the world have experienced this common threat. Now we realize that climate is a common threat doesn't matter how tall you are, how smart you are, 
how much money you've got, we all face the same common threat of climate change, of viruses that are out there, indifferent to who we are. We're all just in this together, like it or not. And actually, I do like it because together we can go from decline to recovery. Now that we know what the problems are, we can we can do something about it. Lucky kids. You, <laughs> I mean, seriously, the things that now are known that could not be known, not only not by me when I was a kid, but the smartest people who lived on the planet in the 1950s were just embarking on this greatest era of consuming the planet, of mining, of burning through fossil fuels at an unprecedented rate of, of taking, of destroying forests that have taken all preceding history to get to where we now are, that we self-centered us have just consumed them on our watch thinking it's all about us. Well, you know, flip it around. It is now up to us to say what's what really matters. Do we want there to be a planet where your kids and your grandkids and all future generations, a thousand, 10,000 years from now, will really depend on what we do in the next 10 years. Climate scientists don't give us much time, but we do have time. And it's not the scientists who are saying this, just looking at the evidence, look at the trajectory, look how fast we have come from, from a healthy healthy coral reefs, we've lost half of the coral reefs in about 50 years. If we keep going another 50 years, well, the pace is picking up, it's accelerating. We only have 10% of the sharks. We could lose every shark. We could kill them all. We know how to kill. Can we also use the power of knowing to care? Can we restore health to the ocean? The hope spots that I talk about in the book, that Mission Blue with armed with people around the world who've come together to embrace the ocean, identify places that they know and love and are willing to commit, working with communities. In some cases, they're fishing communities who are converting their livelihoods from killing fish to protecting them because they make a better living caring for them as a place where people will pay, and I'm one of them, pay big bucks for the privilege of coming to a healthy coral reef mm. where fish are really important as, as elements that make those reefs healthy. And take them out and the reef dies. If you maintain a healthy reef system where fish prosper, there are other ways to make a living than killing fish. How do people eat if you can't kill fish? Well, let me count the ways. <laughs> we don't have to eat fish. Anyway, eating fish is a choice, just like eating cows is a choice. And okay, they taste good, but maybe knowing the real cost involved, we can change. We can. It's happening. And that's what's exciting about being around in the 21st century. We have choices armed with knowledge, we can restore much of what's been lost, enough, we hope, to repair the systems that we rely on for our existence 
I mean, a child can understand the carbon cycle. A CEO can understand it. A fisherman can understand it. Anybody can understand it. Once we exercise this thing that we've got called a brain or mind and looking at evidence, I think we're not unique. We're not the only creatures on earth with intelligence. We know elephants are smart. Whales are smart. Dolphins are smart. Cats and dogs. I've met some pretty intelligent fish, <laughs> but none have the power that the kids of today have and all of the rest of us too, of looking at the expanse of time. Going back, we now have some idea of how earth came to be. And, and it's relatively new insight that Rachel Carson, when she, when she wrote The Sea Around Us, published in 1951, there was a question. Nobody really had the evidence, knew that continents move around in the way that now we know they do, that the history of life on Earth, we now are pretty confident in, in being able to say that Earth is about four and a half billion years old. That's new insight based on evidence gained in the last half century or so. We're on a roll in terms of new insight, new knowledge that now is newly available, can be communicated globally in ways that could not happen before. So why am I an optimist? Why do I say, come on, there's plenty of reason for hope, especially with these young minds, these kids coming along. They're not burdened with traditions, with habits that insist we have to do this, we have to do that because my parents, my grandparents, my great-grandparents did it this way. No, why? Kids ask why and how and when, and especially why not? Why not think differently about who we are, where we've come from, where we might be going, how we might get to a better place by respecting nature and looking at trees with value beyond what they're worth when you cut them down. Looking at the value of ancient trees, ancient systems, systems that have not just taken hundreds of years and not just thousands of years, but millions of years to develop. We should not feel that we have the right to just consume them in our lifetime. We need to figure out how to take what we've already taken and reuse, repurpose what we've got out there in our junk heaps. That Come on, there's, there are metals there that we don't have to mine new parts of the earth to find zinc and, and iron and cobalt and lithium and whether they're materials in relative abundance or materials that are relatively scarce. We've already mined so much for so long. Why don't we just start there and reuse, capitalize? We're already getting pretty good. We need to be a whole lot better about taking the oil that is in plastics and repurpose those plastics and to start, when we start to build something new, to think about how it can be used going forward. We call this the circular economy. I'm not alone in saying, hey, 
I'm just saying, what a good idea. Those brilliant people who have said, here's how we do it. We need to listen to them and figure out with every piece of equipment we've got, whether it's your computer, your cell phone, your socks, <laughs> whatever it is that we use today, think about the next life that they can have. There, there's no away on earth. There's no <laughs> getting rid of our stuff. It, it just piles up if we throw it away. There are great fortunes to be made in figuring out the way forward with, without taking, just always taking, taking from new sources of consuming the living earth. Well, I, I have to say that your your hope is infectious. I think, right? I mean, just, <laughs> Absolutely. Just yeah, just listening to you talk about this, I'm like, yeah, that, like totally, we can get we we got this, right? <laughs> Feel refreshed. Yeah. You mentioned that we aren't the only intelligent life on Earth, and um, I think one of the best examples of that is in octopuses. And I was just curious, you know, what you thought of the documentary, My Octopus Teacher. And, you know, Matt and I had a couple conversations about this film. And, and I think the tradition of being afraid of anthropomorphizing in science, but a lot of your work is is anthropomorphizing the ocean and, you know, um, the, the, the living beings that exist in the ocean. And, um, yeah, just wondering what, what you think about octopuses and, and what you thought about that film. Anthropomorphizing has gotten a bad rap, and maybe it should. Every creature, including humans, are unique. We have not just fingerprints, we have DNA prints. We know that no two humans are exactly alike, even so-called identical twins. And it isn't just in our DNA, it's in our behavior. We look different, we act different. Yet we can see ourselves reflected in the animals that we share intimate space with, cats, dogs, horses. And in, you can't convince anyone who's had a dog that dogs <laughs> can be happy or they can be sad. Jane Goodall, when studying chimpanzees, was given a bad time by her fellow scientists because she gave the chimpanzees that she was learning about, she gave them names. She described unique behaviors. This chimpanzee was different from all other chimpanzees and had a face and behaved differently and had emotions, sadness, happiness, pain, pleasure. We can see it across the animal kingdom that we are connected. The great, two great miracles, I think, of, of life. One, how, how every living thing is different from every other one of its own species and every other species. And yet, there are common connections. The chemistry of life, and of course, as I say, we're all carbon-based units. There are certain elements that are common to all forms of life. Oxygen, hydrogen, water, that makes its way through through life. So maybe it should not be a surprise that lobsters are curious, that fish feel pain, that there are variations on the theme of brains, 
some of the biggest brains on the planet are in sperm whales. And what do they know that we don't know? Um, we can learn from these other creatures. If we, we think it's all about us, that we're the only creatures on, on the planet who can discover things and learn things and pass information along. Um, it's a kind of arrogance that, that has gotten us into serious trouble. We need to have respect for, well, life is a miracle. This whole planet, when you think how unlikely it is that we should exist at all, that Earth should exist at all. Look at all the rest of the universe. Lots of options out there. Maybe there's life somewhere else. But for sure, there aren't apricots and oranges and apples anywhere except here. Because Earth is unique. It's taken a long time to get from the beginning to where we are today. The best thing we can do is work with nature. We can, we can help restore by leaving places alone, give nature a break. That's what happens in the ocean when we stop killing. Natural systems will never go back to what they were, but they can be better than what they are now. Mm. Best thing we can do is be respectful of the processes that got us to where we are. This miracle of a planet in a universe that's really hostile. Got to take care of it if we want to survive. Most people, literally most scientists, there are rare exceptions who invest time and really have an attitude of respect for the animals they are engaging. I think of George Schaller, who has studied pandas over years, getting to know individuals, and not by killing them and carving them up and saying that this is what the bits and pieces of a panda look like, but to get to know the living pandas. Jane Goodall, of course, 15 years, day and night, living with the families of chimpanzees and seeing through really more than one generation, getting to know them. Randy Wells, a scientist in Sarasota, Florida, who for 50 years has studied generations of bottlenose dolphins that live in that area and gets to know the moms, the dads, the kids, the grandparents, the great-grandmother of some of the today's dolphin, little dolphins, and understanding the environmental hazards they have to face along the way. Getting to know an octopus one single octopus over a year. And in the context of knowing that kelp forest over a period of years, getting to know it and all the creatures, the pajama sharks, the urchins, the kelp itself, it's remarkable. Some people would call this natural history. Whatever it is, it's good science. Reporting, observing carefully, reporting honestly what you see. And if you allow a bit of poetry, if you allow something that we think of as being humane, of thinking with affection, isn't that something about the better side of human nature? Why would we discount that? 
of being empathetic, of being sympathetic, of caring in a way. You'd like to think that we care with, for one another with empathy and caring, see the world from the standpoint of someone else or some other form of life. And that's, that's what happened with Craig Foster. He was able to empathize with an octopus, to see the world through her eyes, to imagine what it must be like to be an octopus, and not to interfere, but to be a witness, to try to see the world when it's dark at least half the time, to live in a world that is cold all the time, to wonder, what is she thinking? How is she equipped? And when she reaches out with her, her arm, it's so different from a human arm, but with a similar kind of curiosity and maybe even empathy, why discard that piece of who we are and think of it as not scientific when it's real? I think we need to do a much better job of, of understanding ourselves and one another to empathize to see the world through the perspective of others and therefore to see ourselves within that system, within the same world more clearly. Mm, beautifully said. We wanted to ask you if there's one thing that you would still love to do in the ocean that you haven't done. Oh, I haven't seen all of it yet. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody has. Every time I go into the ocean, it's, I expect to be surprised and I'm never disappointed. So I really am looking forward to using little submersibles that I'm, you know, had the great joy of being a part of developing new technologies for ocean exploration. And I so look forward to seeing the knowledge that we have, the insights we now have about having systems that are quiet that you can listen to the ambient sound, to have systems so simple to drive, even a scientist can do it, or even <laughs> a child. So I am really looking forward to accessing the deep sea in ways, of course, I have been privileged to go deep. And, but but <laughs> it's, it's a tiny fraction of the ocean that's been seen by anybody. And you think how large it is? We've only mapped maybe 15% of the ocean with the same degree of accuracy that we have for the land or the moon or Mars or Jupiter. Come on. I mean, this decade is exciting because there is a commitment globally to pull out all stops and map the ocean floor, pull out all stops and explore the ocean with greater detail. But this decade must be must also be the time of the greatest era of caring. I mean, 30%, does that mean that 70% of the planet we can continue to trash, that we can continue to take on a large scale of wildlife and the land and the sea? No, we have to learn how to respect all of it as if our lives depend on it. It's our life support system and our lives do depend on it. And we're the smartest, not necessarily the smartest, but the best informed generation of people who've ever lived. If we don't succeed, it's really our fault because the knowledge is there. 
I'm counting on the kids. I'm counting on the kids to motivate the grown-ups around them to say, look, you can do this. We have to do this. Why would you leave the world for me in worse shape than the world you knew in your lifetime? Like, thanks, Dad. Thanks, Mom. <laughs> or really, thanks. Thanks. You know, really, let's, uh, let's go for it. Because, and we can measure the difference. That's the joy. Ten years from now, we can look back and say, it's better. We have the evidence. Or not, depending on what we do or what we fail to do. Dr. Earl, you, you seem to be um, a person that was put on this earth to advocate for the oceans. And I wonder if you think, if you grew up in the middle of Kansas, if, if you would have heard the ocean's call from Kansas, if you would have made your way out to the ocean, and if you feel like this was sort of your, your destiny on, on planet Earth. It's the call of, of nature, if you will. It's, it's the call of understanding that we're all connected, land and sea. That as a kid, I, I didn't get to see the ocean very often until I was 12 and moved to Florida with my parents. And then the ocean was there every day. I learned about the ocean by reading about it. And the children of today, wherever they live, have access not just to books, but to ways of seeing the ocean and understanding that Earth is possible, life on Earth is possible because of the ocean. I might have been, you know, think about the children of today who are in Kansas, who might be motivated to find their way to the sea. We're connected in ways that are unprecedented, not just books, but you know, I know what the weather, I can find out what the weather's like in Africa right now with a you know, touch of a button. I, I can vicariously dive under the ice in Antarctica, even though I may never see it. I have seen it a few times, but not everyone ever will. But we now can know what could not be known before because of the ability to share the view. So would I have made my way to the ocean <laughs> 50 years ago? Well, it might have taken longer, but I think I would have gotten there. <laughs> Dr. Earl, thank you so much. Um, this has been an incredibly healing conversation. Just to feel your infectious hope and... Um, just everything that makes you you. It's it's so important, and um, the planet is so so much better off having you here. If I could do one thing to everybody, it would be to say, look in the mirror, and say, who who am I? What do I have? What have I got? Can I sing? Do I have a way with with art, with communication? Am I, do I have a way with kids? Am I a kid? Do I have a way with grown-ups? <laughs> What is, what is it that you like and what can you do? Everyone has power. Everyone can do something. Nobody can do all of it. That's the other thing. It might be discouraging because it, it, you don't know what to do. There's so much out there, but you can do something. You can make choices in your life 
and encourage somebody else to make choices in theirs. And that is contagious. Times, times 10, times 100, times 1,000. Pretty soon you begin to see change. And it is happening. It's, everything starts with someone doing something because they care. And there's evidence all over the world of changes that have come about all the changes, good and bad, because somebody did something and it was contagious. It caught on. And sometimes it leads to war. Be nice not to do that. We need to have the war against poverty, the war against ignorance, the war against killing. <laughs> it's that kind of change. We need to think about what is the world you want and then do what you can every day with some decision, some action that will get you to that better place. It works. Yeah, wow. That yeah. was incredible. Yeah, that's definitely... I know, it's like we were talking, we were, we were so like pessimistic, I guess. She's just not. And it's hard to like, it's hard to even ask a question about that because it's like her optimism is so infectious that you just mm-hmm. want to be like yeah like yeah, yeah let's go for it you yeah. know like you're right we can solve this man i know we're just a bunch of debbie downers i guess I know. <laughs> we need to like we need to maybe fix that i don't know i know but, but you know the other thing like i think she genuinely believes that her positivity and her her hope for the future and future generations and um, what she said about, you know, kids was just so amazing. It was awesome. Yeah, I know. And she, you know, and she's speaking with so much, like all the weight of her personal experience and all of the many years that she's been on this earth, you know, and the things that she's seen and the experiences she's had that like we couldn't imagine. And you Mm -hmm. just can't, can't disagree with anything she says. <laughs> probably this will probably. I hope this feeling lasts of this new sense of like, yeah, maybe maybe we do maybe we do got this. Uh-huh. You know, like maybe, yeah. maybe we do got this. <laughs> <Totally>. <laughs> because you know, uh, I don't know. I think I think that the great thing about us and this podcast is is just we're honest, right? And like we're honest about our, our raw feelings about things and. And, you know, our role, you and me, isn't to, like, fake how positive we feel about things. You know what I mean? We're like, no, we feel despair. You know, but then we talk to people and uplift and highlight people that can do that genuinely Mm -hmm. um, and and change hearts and minds. So, I love that. I could talk to her all day. Oh, my gosh, I know. I just feel I feel really great now. I feel like I could like lift a truck. <laughs> you know. <laughs> awesome. It's awesome. Earth to Humans is a production of the Wild Lens Collective. It's produced every other week by Serena Simons, Matt Podolsky, and Hannah Mulvaney. You probably heard our brand new intro track at the top of the show and thought Wow, what a fun, catchy intro. Well, that sequence was edited by our very own Matt Podolsky with shouting assistance from the Foothills School of Arts and Sciences kindergarten class. 
We also have a brand new, beautiful logo for the show, designed by Nozomi Takayabu. Nozomi also makes unique artwork for each episode of the show, which you can see at wildlandsinc.org ETH. Fun fact, you can support this podcast on Patreon for as little as $1 a month, with other tiers that give you access to our complete Earth to Humans archive, as well as merch. For more info, check out patreon.com slash earth to humans. And if you're feeling super excited, leave us an honest rating and review. It really helps other folks find the show. Audio samples used in the intro sequence were provided by the Macaulay Library at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. And today's music is by Blue Dot Sessions. Thank you.